0: y'all, so um, something about the Ruta podcast that usually works really well for me is that I do my intros and outros live so that my sweet Viking producer only has to do post-production editing on my vocal tracks and music tracks. But on this episode, when I listened back, we felt that it could do with some more substance right up front when I introduced my mother tree, Mama. I sort of get irreverent and call her all these things like badass bitch and justice warrior, which are true, but also underplay her accomplishments that's just not on. Um, So here's the kind of bio my amazing parent deserves. (laughs) Dr. Randolph Hollingsworth is is an award-winning author, teacher, product developer, researcher, STEAM advocate, that's STEM plus the arts, She sits on many national and international advisory boards for history and justice work. She's published an astounding amount of scholarly papers and articles about women's history, human rights, racism, and wealth gaps. Most recently co-authored a piece in New Zealand um, on migrant and ethnic women and their experiences of COVID-19 in Aotearoa. And she's working on a larger piece of historical fiction set in Aotearoa as well. I mean, she's broadened many minds, most definitely my own. And she's run programs of work within the university setting and virtual spaces that aim to connect the student with abundant resources to allow them to become as fulsome a human being as they deserve to be. She is the type of quiet, razor-sharp leader that moves people to ponder existence past their interactions with her. She's a strange and wonderful mind, and I certainly never cease being surprised by her. And I've got to say, she's saved my life a few times. Whew, I feel so much better having been able to do that. And I've got some really cool show notes. So do look those up. A bit of how to um, see the work she's on, working on now. And uh, some reference notes, links to things that we talk about during the episode. I really hope you enjoy this. And um, back to my regularly scheduled programming. Okay? Okay. Welcome to the Rudo Love Podcast, a mini-series of interviews and anecdotes tailored for the inquisitive souls of today. On today's oo interview, where I ask juicy questions to people that move me, I asked my mama, author, badass bitch, peace and justice warrior, educator and scholar, Randolph Hollingsworth to join me.
1: Hi, mom. <laughs> Thank you for including me in your wonderful podcast.
0: Thank you for coming on. Let's start somewhere towards the beginning of your upbringing, the rolling green Appalachian foothills of Kentucky. Tell me about one superpower you have because you were brought up in the bluegrass.
1: Ah, so (laughs) superpower. In the bluegrass, um, well, actually, you said the Appalachian foothills. The bluegrass is at the edge of the foothills and is in this kind of shallow basin with beautiful grass and rolling hills. And so I feel like my superpower from growing up in the bluegrass has to do with being able to look at a place and think about all the different kinds of people that walked there because we know, even if we don't always acknowledge it, There are all different kinds of people that were in that area for thousands of years. Mm. So it's kind of fun to imagine who else besides myself (laughs) is journeying through that space. And I think it was because I was in the bluegrass, which is a uh, highly uh, desirable place for agricultural uh, pursuits as well as Uh, crossroads in the U.S., uh, from north to south and east to west.
0: Oh, I love that. Oh, wow. It's so funny that you say that because I kind of figured that it would be a superpower that was to do with how you saw the world, but I wasn't expecting that answer. (laughs) That's really cool.
1: Well, I um, learned it over time. But I grew up in a family that was very interested in um, looking at the land and imagining where um, where we came from and why we were there. And I think that's kind of a superpower if you're keeping that in the forefront, that curiosity uh, in the forefront of your mind. Um, It helps you um, explore new worlds, which is what we did when we came and followed you to New Zealand.
0: Yeah, for context, dear listener, um, I like to joke that I imported my parents (laughs) um, in 2018. Uh, And, well, in 2006, I left the States kind of not knowing that I wasn't going to come back. And then, here you are. We're a family. In a strange and wonderful land.
1: Although we've left the wonderful Eliana behind us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And plenty of our ancestral bones and DNA and histories, you know, we're migrants. That's right. Yeah.
1: And Eliana um is uh, Rudo's little sister. <laughs>
0: Um, I'm curious about the experiences that you had as a young scholar and activist. Um, You and dad met at Colgate University. Hi, kitty. Hi. Shush. Cat. Um, Colgate University in New York um, while you were doing your master's. The memory for me, or one of the memories that sticks out, um, is about a story of your multicultural club hosting Bob Marley and the whalers.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That was pretty cool. Yeah. Tell me about like the, like the atmosphere, the political undertones going on doing something like that. What was it? What did it feel like at the time?
1: Mm -hmm. Do you? So uh, Colgate uh, was (laughs) 99.98% white, uh, wealthy um, kids and, They uh, were recruiting um, black males of color for sports. They were really into um, ice hockey and football. Mostly is where many of the uh, athletes uh, of color were recruited in. um, And there was very little to support those athletes uh, that came from very different kind of schools than the white kids that were at Colgate. And I uh, was needing a job, and they had hired a woman from Yale University who had just finished the Frederick Douglass papers. Frederick Douglass was a, a, um, a very powerful um, black uh, abolitionist and writer, civil rights human rights uh, advocate throughout the 19th and early 20th century. And he um, had these volumes and volumes of papers that were being codified. And uh, this amazing woman, um, May Henderson, was um, um, invited to Collier University to head up a multicultural center. It's first. And she was very much a... um, privileged in fact she had married a Nigerian of great wealth and she um, came to Colgate as um, this leader of a multicultural and a center and had never done something with the with that kind of effort so we sat together I was I was hired as her assistant and um, We sat together to talk about how we were going to build up the center. They gave us basically a blank check to completely renovate a building that they gave us. And at the top of the building, we had an art center and there was a kitchen in there. It was, it was, and then down underneath was the library, the music center and, you know, comfy chairs. It was a hangout place At the same time, we were emphasizing, studying, and there were all kinds of wonderful things that were happening at the center. And somebody offered to her that Bob Marley and the Whalers were coming through the U.S. And she had the money, so we got to host Bob Marley and the Whalers at Colgate University. And it was Halloween night that they came. They came rolling up in the... So the, already
0: quite a little air
1: of mayhem. Oh my gosh. And, and they came rolling up in this van and um, came out and they were so colorful and they really didn't even spend much time talking to May. I mean, she was really kind of annoyed because they weren't interested in her. And <laughs> she's beautiful, beautiful black woman, but um, clearly uh, of, a, of a whole different... Class ilk <laughs> than um, this group and they came through they went through the me- multicultural center and went to the kitchen and started cooking their dinner and May and they put on music and oh it was just it was amazing it was so amazing to have all those people oh my gosh. and the women were beautiful and uh, they were interested in hearing you know my experiences and um, uh, from Kentucky, and so um, May came running in. I'll never forget. I think they have marijuana. You think that they're up there cooking with marijuana? Duh. <laughs> I'm like, well, May, you did ask them to come, and so anyway, we uh, we attended this amazing concert. And I guess they were happy enough and and rested enough that it lasted long past midnight. Oh my god. And um the place was completely filled. Now this was the time that there was a rise of bluegrass music. So folk and bluegrass were really popular in central New York. Yeah. At this time. So this yeah. would have been, what, 82, you 81? Got like the
0: Weavers, Bob Marley.
1: Oh, my gosh. So, uh, Peter Tuck. I mean, so, not Bob Marley, uh, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan. <laughs> and so um, there, people from all over came. So the, the auditorium was completely filled, and people were dancing, and it just was, and it was Halloween, so people were dressed up, and it was, it was just magical.
0: Yeah, because there's a kind of a similar vibe between folk music, and oh yeah, and and reggae,
1: oh yeah, they're storytellers. That's exactly what was going on, and it was just a rhythm that was infectious. Oh and yeah, And unlike anything, of course, than any um, central New York <laughs> person had had tried. Mm. So it was. It was just really exciting. And they were so good-hearted about being among people who were so different. And so it was, um, it was an experience I'll never forget. It was something that um, mostly I remember how gentle and kind that here are these really famous people <laughs> that have, plenty of other things that they could be doing and they were in central New York and if they weren't aware then I helped to make them aware that this was a brand new cultural center and it was for the purpose of raising up issues around equality mm. so um, and 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 equity and um, just you know um, That that sort of soulfulness as somebody listens to you talk about what you hope can happen and change. Yeah. And I don't remember getting lectured at or, you know, told, oh, do it this way. That's not what they did. They just made me feel better about what I was doing. It was pretty awesome.
0: God, I love that story. I'm very jealous of you. (laughs) I wish I could just like, Crawl inside of your memories right now <laughs> and experience that through your eyes. It's well, so it's not that
1: we, you know, we sat around and and chit chatted because, really, they were interested in each other and they were talking and they were planning other things. But the interactions that I did have were very, just very um, open and loving.
0: Yeah, this is a long time ago and it feels very fresh yes. as you ex- explain this. Yeah pretty formative
1: yeah and it's so funny that um as a white woman i uh, could interact and maybe because i was from uh, kind of a southern country background that they were um more interested in talking to me than to may mm this gorgeous black woman who clearly was um, of a higher social class. And maybe it could be, too, that she was sitting there going, Woo <laughs> She mm-hmm. was absolutely scared of what was going on.
0: Yeah, they might have felt like the stigma that she was putting on them because if she's sitting there freaking out about
1: the marijuana <laughs> and the way they were dressed and and the different... Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, boy that's so amazing that that memory came back so sharp and that's interesting you uh, cuz you've never asked me that before. That's pretty fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for going there. You're clearly very moved by that memory. <laughs> I love that. Um I mean it's this is an interesting segue because when we think about um trying to bridge the gap between spaces that are unreal and real like a memory to you know you're you elicited a a real thing for me in that in this moment but you're also really fascinated by virtual reality which is the emulation or the simulation of something real into a digital space so not that i'm saying that there's a connection between your ability to tell a good story and your interest in virtual reality but I wonder where where do you think it came from your interest cuz you were right you were on it from the get go you were the minute computers were made the minute you know the internet was a thing you've always been immersed and enmeshed and exploring the digital space um especially virtual reality so you were like a pioneer in in second life
1: what why what is that for you? Hmm. Well, yes, I was I was one of the early adopters of distance learning. Ed tech had already been around for a long time, uh, but it was always computer based. Ed mean? E- educational technology oh. had been around. I mean, radio was considered educational technology. Yeah, in the nineteen twenties. I mean, and, and before that. Uh, records you know so there was the idea that um you would teach a student uh, by um connecting them with with resources that they otherwise wouldn't have in that place well when i was teaching in the community college in lexington kentucky um we didn't have many resources and so when the internet came around oh my gosh how exciting I was one of the first to get an email address, I learned basic HTML, and so I put up websites. I just saw it as a way to, to talk with people and to interact with the rest of the world. So when I was teaching African history... And
0: you didn't have to worry about how many books you had on stock because it was all there. Or my students. Right. I mean, that was the
1: other thing is students, my students had very few uh, funds to yeah. buy the books, and I always... Had a lot of books in my classes, so um, using the internet meant that my students could be, especially in African history, right there. So Mandela comes out of prison, and there's all these things on. The, at that point, it was called Gopher and and Usenet, and so um, we were hooking into channels of discussions ar- around the Black Freedom Movement f- from Lexington, Kentucky. <laughs> and it was amazing. So, connecting into that larger world um, with just a black screen and a strobe light of a cursor as you're sitting there. Now, what's the command to get to this and that gopher? And how do I write this or that? So, the computer gets more and more evolved. And my students. I, I become uh, open and, and, and um, experimental in my classes by, for example, um, my women's studies class, um, having the students uh, interact with the authors of the books that they had chosen to study. And guess what? The authors would right talk back.
0: back. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs>
1: gosh. My students were floored. And so in a way it was a democratizing effort because, you know, here's a here's an amazing scholar sitting up in Yale University talking to eight students or something in their classroom. And they they start talking to my students. It's, you know, one of fifty in my community college class. Oh my gosh, it was it was empowering. Mm. So I that's how I approached internet that it was an empowering tool Mm -hmm. and um the only the only limitations were those that we had on ourselves so uh i was designing different kinds of uh educational experiences using digital technologies as the the web was 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 growing and there were a lot of people that were still just putting up, you know, pamphlets on their on the web saying, "Oh, here's my website." No, 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 that's a pamphlet. That's not that's not a website. You have to be able to interact with people. So the idea of using the web as a a way to connect uh, was very powerful for me. And I, I was invited to be the Commonwealth Humanities Scholar in 1999, and that allowed me to start publishing things that, uh, connected with my Kentucky history, but also with digital technologies. And, um, um, so I was invited to work, uh, in, at the capital of the state of Kentucky Frankfurt and worked for the council on post-secondary education in building something called the Kentucky virtual university. Mm-hmm. And that's when we really took off with what are the educational technologies that would be best to introduce in um, all of the different universities and colleges in Kentucky. So um, one of the things that we learned about was Second Life. Yeah, the Linden Labs had just started coming up out of their private um, servers and were going open source. And we were very interested in open source, community sourced um, uh, environments that allowed for creative efforts by the user community.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We weren't interested, because at the same time, what was coming out was things like war, uh, Worlds of Warcraft, which were proprietary, and The Sims. These yeah. were all proprietary, and you just hooked on for the ride. You really, there was some creativity involved, but really, you just followed the quest that was already written. So we were looking for open source, community sourced environments, and the Linden Labs um, that created Second Life. I don't know. We started early, yeah, two thousand two, two thousand three. Um, helping to build their no avail to get me on the Second Life. (laughs) I thought you would love it because there was so much music and so much art. And the, um, their terms of use uh, were codified by the, the community. The community also um, uh, helped build the standards. And, of course, at the beginning, was, uh, there was all this stuff about pornography and all this stuff about you know, what they called griefing. You know, Some famous person would come on, like a politician or something, and all of a sudden... Flying testicles would <laughs> come across the screen and fill up the screen that 's <laughs> called griefing because you can 't be killed in second life, but you can be smothered or tossed around or whatever until you figure out how to get out of a program that's ensnared you mm. but anyway so we we had all kinds of uh, of input on how to make this a uh, um, a creative place rather than a place for literally dickheads. <laughs> 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 to fly through, unimpeded to fly through the sick. air. <laughs> <laughs> so amazing. Um, that was, you know, that was fun. And um, so I was working at the Kentucky Virtual University. We had the second life. We built our own island um, and allowed the the universities and colleges to use it to build stuff or to to orient their students and faculty. And um, um, the, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but um, at one point, a very dear friend of mine, her name is Kathy Blee,
0: Kathy!
1: B L E E. And I had known her because she worked at the University of Kentucky when her first book came out on the women of the Klan. Um, she focused on right wing hate groups and, and uh, gender aspects related to that. And so Kathy um, knew I was working in Second Life um, and that we were building different communities and we were. Connecting up different universities. Um, in fact, one of our partners was from New South Wales, actually. We had a Australian. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there were a lot of Australians there. Interesting. Uh, the vast majority uh people at that time in Second Life were either American, Japanese, a lot of Germans, Italians. But anyway... So it was a very international environment. Mm -hmm. And um, so Kathy knew I was in there, and she knew it was international, and she goes, well, do you think there's any right-wing groups? Because I know they're using the web for their recruiting and their discussions, like Stormfront had already been going for a long time. It was Mm. a big discussion group for hate groups. Mm. And um I said, Well, I bet, you know, there's everything. There is literally everything in Second Life because you could be whatever you wanted to be. Yeah. And um so I started and I wrote uh the memoir of a feminist avatar <laughs> in Second Life.
0: Yup. <laughs> yeah, you uh, did. And
1: so I, of course, I had to make myself small and petite and blonde and white with freckles and cowboy boots. That's what I remember mostly. So that I could walk up very easily or fly up very easily to a build that was devoted to, you know, Le Pen, the political, uh, the fascist in France Mm -hmm. was, uh, had their own build Um, The British National Party. Hmm. Um, The Germans were using a lot of YouTube to show their um, violence. But there was a lot of discussion in um, Second Life and, of course, lots of Americans and South Africans. So I found a lot, actually.
0: (laughs) And Kathy went on as well. You got her...
1: Well, Kathy published my my little essay in her, in her book on about um, right-wing hate groups, uh, women in right-wing hate groups across uh, international boundaries. So um, what's stuck the, in there is my little thing about Second Life.
0: What's the message there with Kathy's work? With why why the, the focus on women in hate groups? Oh well,
1: so um, for for Kathy, um, and I and I and it's certainly true for me. Often, when you study a subject, it is centered on the male subject with a male gaze, mm-hmm. and. So you have to wonder as you're reading those kinds of things, well, what was the what was the rest of the community doing? <laughs> where are the women? And what are they thinking? What are they seeing? And so that's where she started. And so the Women of the Klan came out, I guess, in the 1980s. And it just blew the socks off of people. Because mm. the Women's Studies had really only been going, it was still really young and... As a as an academic subject, and what she was doing is saying, "Look, I'm going to do oral history. These are women in their 80s, and they really didn't think that they were anything different from anybody else. I'm doing their oral histories, and they're talking about making sure their town is white, that getting rid of all the blacks, mm. and this is not or or Latinos or." Um, Uh, Native Americans. So this is nothing unusual. We're just supporting what the town should be. Mm. And it's just sort of plain spoken and has a moral stand. And that, as Kathy kept going, so that that kind of book was just like unbelievable because everybody was studying about leftists or about revolutionaries or right (laughs) and all of a sudden here comes this amazing book about yeah how how do white communities become white
0: right well because they made them that way
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) so um and women are an important part of the construction of it and maintenance yeah you know And so the idea that as Kathy continued in her amazing work, which she still is uh, doing amazing stuff um, internationally, um, her her findings as she continues to crunch the numbers and to do the oral histories is that quite often women nowadays are being used as recruiters Mm. for right-wing hate groups that they will put a woman on the TV as has happened here in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Well, we're just moms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, you are a mother. However, (laughs) you are sitting there in front of a television being interviewed and you are not mainstream. You are funded by extremists and you hold extremist views. But that was not, how they see themselves or not how they present themselves. Mm. And so then they can talk with people. Oh, this is the way to go. This is, this is to make the world right.
0: Yeah. And Creepy.
1: they're really good at that. Creepy. <laughs> I don't know. How do we get off on that? Oh, Kathy. She's virtual awesome. Reality. Kathy. Yeah. um, Yeah. So virtuality is awesome because we know that it does amazing things to your brain. Positive, it can. It really can. I swear. People don't think that, but it really can. It changes your brain, and if you do it in a in a well constructed educational setting, um, it can be for the the better. Mm. And um, the idea that you have a didactic lecture in a three hundred person amphitheater and say, okay, now you've done learning. No, you just had somebody lecture, that's all we know. Yeah. What can that person that was listening to the lecture now do as a result of that lecture? Not much. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they can, but we don't know because that's what learning is. So virtual reality, the person has to do the thing. Mm. They have to do the the learning in a physical way, even though it's in the digital world. I never forget, um, we always had to do rigorous kind of orientation because it's not an easy ramp. Right. Big learning curve. <laughs> it's a big learning curve. So we'd have, you know, a week or two sometimes of orientation because it's not only the um, the actual physical movement that you have to do with the mouse that's different, but also the cultural norms and so forth. The um, um, one one student immediately... They were given a regular avatar. I try to do that, make it easy, mm-hmm. and they squished it. So it was running around in this little squished body. Yeah, it was all misshapen, and they thought it was funny. But then they, but then I realized they were doing that because they were being treated differently. They were being, they were learning, they were teaching, they were. It was an amazing thing, and I would never have thought of it, but it took an 18-year-old, to do that. Yes. And, and um, you know, because a lot of them really love the, you know, the big muscular men things or big boobied whatevers, you know, with scanty clothing. It's very easy to do in indeed. Second Life. indeed. did. And then all of a sudden, here comes this little squished yeah. thing. And, and he had a trail that came out behind. It was <laughs> like... This kind of smoke that came out behind the avatar. It was amazing. And they'd fly and the smoke was coming <laughs> it was a little ball. I mean, it's just a, and then the the task in the class was to interview somebody and talk about what their culture was and how did they be how were they perceived? And they had to take field notes and so on. I mean it was an ethnographic thing. Well, this student had an amazing experience.
0: Yeah,
1: Whew. I love virtual reality. I'm, I, you're swaying me. <laughs> I I tried to sway you with all the amazing concerts that were in there, and the well we're uh, seeing it now. Different we're authors and I'm gonna have amazing to catch creative art. Yeah, no, I because you don't have to use physics. Yeah, I mean you can do whatever you want. Exactly, I have or so you can use physics and.
0: Huh? I have so many ideas that I want to be able to do.
1: I could just do them all there. You could create waterfalls and then make the water stop and go elsewhere. Ah. I mean, there's just so many things.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Watch the space, people. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk also about the work that you do on Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. Um, firstly, the importance of Wikipedia is so interesting and underappreciated, I think. Um, first, I wanted to reflect on how it's such a great, t- you know, evolution of how we can relate to information and history, and I- history, definitely in your case, um, it's alive. It's, it's a reflection of history in the sense that it's alive and constantly being updated and, and challenged and um, yeah, re- reshaped as more voices and more content become available um so i guess i wanted to know as a historian um is this the is that the attraction for you around wikipedia and also what drives you to contribute
1: on the particular categories that you do so i started uh in wikipedia uh, also around the same time and it was because we were looking for free textbooks mm-hmm Free and open textbooks, and we were looking at how the, the the term book was being changed by the programming and digital technologies that were coming out, and accessibility, universal dev- design was really crucial. So um, I I joined up with Wikipedia early and learned the coding because at that time it was more difficult, but it's gotten much easier now. But yes, um, the again the community was crucial and so exciting that um, the idea that there are levels at which you can participate uh, depending on the amount of time you want to give it. Mm -hmm. So it is about um, a community-sourced resource in its um, truest sense. The idea that anybody can you know, change the wording or whatever. It's true. But let me just say, don't you wish you could change the wording of an Encyclopedia Britannica that's just really terrible? Yes. (laughs) There are plenty out there. So, you know, the idea that anybody could change it is not scary to me. um, Because you know that somebody's going to go turn back around. And within the Wikipedia structure, there are editors that um, that's their job is to keep the standards high. And over and over again, people have done so many studies. It has proven to be much more reliable and much more factual and much more inclusive than any other encyclopedia anywhere. Yes. So that's kind of, it's fun to be part of that, uh, the, uh, the, the growth from the bottom up. So when I was teaching um, my Kentucky Civil Rights Women class, Um, There was just nothing about women. And I had already gone through uh, a lot of training for myself and had started some biographies on women uh, advocates to teach myself about (laughs) Kentucky history in the civil rights era. Um, And so I kind of let people know that that's what I was doing. I was going to have my students write biographies. And um, they could all choose who they were going to do that wasn't in Wikipedia or was what they call, you know, a red, uh, you know, somebody that had been mentioned but did not have a Hyper-like. article. Yeah. So um, my students started uh, really doing very, very well. And it's a good lesson for at the university level I don't know at the high school level, I've never tried it, but at the university level, the difference between a general knowledge article and um, a blog post with a thesis is really an important lesson to be learned. And you have to learn it over and over and over again, and you have to have a lot of peer review. And all of those skills it takes to have peer review... (laughs) are important skills for all of us to oh learn. My god, yes. As a lifelong thing. So yes. um I felt like I was doing my students a good a good service. And um still today, all their articles are still up there. Yay And um, you know, I put on the talk page that this is written by a university student for a class, but it didn't matter. Because it was so good. They were really good about their notes and their uh, resources and uh, people are using them and adding to them so I feel really proud of that and so yeah I'm now that I've come to New Zealand I've made it my sort of life effort to include there was a great work done by the dictionary you know Teara mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. where they would put in what's called a stub so you have this long essay in the New Zealand dictionary, but you just have a stub in Wikipedia, um, which is sad because, of course, what comes up in Google first—not mm. teara. <laughs> Let me just tell you, Google, <laughs> Google will first take Wikipedia. So I would either add to the I stubs that were up there to surface up Teiata for me, because you use it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in, in general, for the general user.
0: Yeah.
1: So. Um, yeah, so Google's learning f- from what you like to Absolutely. see. Yeah. But anyway, uh so you know, kids in high school or wherever if they're they're saying, oh, "Okay, so who is Kate Shepard?" Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's going to give you a lot of results, but uh, Google's going to be right there. Uh and Wikipedia's going to be right there. So
0: and I think we all kind of understand how to navigate it at this point because it is such a source of truth.
1: Yeah. It really, it really is, and I'm 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 excited to say that I've added enough New Zealand women so far that now you know what Wikipedia has given me. What? Besides, I have badges, but the they have now given me access to um, journals that are closed to the general public, and only if you're on the university campus, <gasps> and you have access to these scholarly journals. Well, because I've edited and created enough articles, I now have access to it's a, a database called JSTOR and ProQuest, all of these wonderful scholarly uh, databases um, that you, I didn't that's have like access in the candy to. Shop situation. Oh, yeah! Because you know, I I I was in the university setting for thirty-five years, so and you're a speed reader. <laughs> I do, I do, and I like a lot of resources, so. It it was it was like golden. It was like going cold turkey when I left the university right.
0: in twenty eighteen.
1: Oh right, <laughs> I had no access to any of that. Um, but anyway, you earned it. So yeah, now That's I have really it again. Cool. So it is. It's pretty awesome.
0: Congratulations and congratulations to your students to be able to say that you know their work.
1: Yeah, has they held were up. really proud of them. Yeah, I was really proud of them.
0: Oh yeah, I love that. Um. What about creative uh commons
1: copyright? So, uh again, uh part of my Kentucky Virtual University was um helping to have people understand in this new digital world that you can't just clip and and paste, you know, off of just cuz it's you can do it, but that's it, called stealing. So, mm-hmm. so the idea that um um, we we helped to educate faculty as well as students about um, copyright law, and uh, at the same time, there were many different open access uh, groups that were working on these various things. And we we got to be friends with this fellow. He was in Ohio at the time. Um, oh my gosh, I've lost his first name. Oh, he's awesome. His last name is Green. Anyway. He was, uh, he's now the the leader of the uh, copyright clearance. I mean, the uh, Creative Copyright um, Cooperative. Mm. And there are seven different uh, licenses. Mm -hmm. So depending on what you want the work to be, you can label it with those different kinds of copyright licenses.
0: Yeah, but how does that... Um, how does that relate to someone who just lives on social media as their form of information and art and you know all the things? Like if that's like your only place where you live on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, like does that even show up
1: there? Like, is that, are there? Well, if you're creating your own content mm-hmm. and it's sitting on a on a platform, it depends on what the platform says. I mean, it, it, it does it belong to that platform because you published it there? Um, if you're building your own, like WordPress, for example, mm-hmm. um, it likes to be t- included in your creative work to say, "Oh, this was powered by WordPress." Um, and that'll, and if you're using their theme, it'll be down at the bottom. But they also have an open Uh, policy that allows you to take their programming and put it on your own server and you can use WordPress and not mention anything about them and all of that then is your publication Mm -hmm. and if you have original content it is yours and people say oh I have to put copyright on there no it starts with it's yours Mm -hmm. unless you put it on a on a platform that says it's not yours (laughs) or, or you've used somebody else's computer. So a lot of times what happens in schools, they have a policy that says if you're using our, or in businesses, if you're using our equipment, it's you're doing that as, as an employee of us and therefore we own the copyright. Right. But what's kind of fun about the creative copyright is that you can say, I Don't care how you use this stuff. Just go. It's completely open. And you can state that. Or you can say, it's completely open. Go. You can make money off of it. Just give me attribution. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and it goes on up and up and up until all the way. It's completely closed. This is only mine. And you may not reuse it without permission. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you have any advice for young creatives or young content makers that are just starting out and like maybe not haven't considered the repercussions of where the world is at in terms of reusing images Mm -hmm. resharing and Mm -hmm. like is there like a grounding place to start for a young creative I would
1: urge A young artist Mm -hmm. like yourself or a young writer that um, you think about your audience Mm -hmm. and you imagine if the audience finds it valuable, um, would you care that they use it or reuse it or change it as they use it?
0: Mm. So just feeling... To how, how you react to that It's kind of your vision.
1: own feeling. Yeah. So f- for me, because I've been an educator for so long, I love it when people use my stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's sometimes when it's a scholarly work and I've put it out in the open and somebody just pretends like it was something that they had written, but they actually use my whole words. That did it a lot with my Kentucky suffrage stuff where I put a lot of information out there. It was open. Um, but they never pointed back to where they got it, which is kind of like a tip of the hat or yeah. a um, "gee, I love you," <laughs> yeah, or "thank you." And I think we we move really fast when we're trying to build things, and we forget to say thank you. Mm. And there, there are a lot of ways to say thank you. Mm. Beautiful.
0: Yeah, I like that. Like, how do you want to be thanked? <laughs> That's your creative commons. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Mm. Um, so the last thing that I kind of wanted you to, to tell um, my audience around the work that you've done is celebrating and raising awareness towards um, different states and different nations, how they granted access for women to vote. And mm. you've done obviously a lot of work on Kentucky suffrage. You've done a lot of work on American, um, the American suffrage movement, but then you have this recent talk that you did and the Epsom Rotary Club where you talked about the difference between the New Zealand, I guess, um, motivation versus the American motivation or some of the key drivers that were behind it um what do you think is the biggest difference between the two nations
1: so uh the american or the us suffrage movement comes up out of the abolition movement mm. so as enslaved people are fighting for their freedom um and activists are taking on that international work. Um, Suffrage, many of the early suffrage uh, activists were taught how to um, lobby the government, have community meetings, um, speak in public because they were abolitionists. And in uh, New Zealand, um, the women's movement um, is national very, very quickly. In the U.S., the women's movement is very much fragmented mm. because ag- abolitionists were fragmented. There were mm. people who believed, oh, no, 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 it's going to be many, many years before slavery's done or we got to free everybody now or we have to remove everybody of color cuz we only want whites here so the uh, the suffrage movement was splintered of course because we have a state system it was very different in New Zealand um I feel that with the and and this is just as an outsider speaking I feel that um There's a lot of work still to be done on why it became a national movement so quickly. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was an important part of that, which was by, gosh, even earlier than the 1890s, which is what a a lot of the history books say here. Um, I'd say... uh, by the eighteen eighties, you you see women that have been white women that have been working together with Maori women um, mm-hmm. on issues around uh, religion or hygiene, social reform, mm-hmm. um, education um, moved together into a suffrage movement that here in New Zealand couldn't imagine. Of course Maori women are going to be part of the, the vote. Yeah.
0: Whereas like women were written out of the history books in America for deigning to suggest that.
1: Oh, the southern states were written out. I mean the yeah. idea that yeah. that in in the U.S., it was just about white women, mm-hmm. so all the the southern black activists um only i'd say in the last thirty years are we really starting to understand how much work was done mm-hmm. by women of color and latino women, and of course uh asian American women are even later, not until the twentieth century could because they were not well eighteen eighties were chinese but the uh, Asian Americans um, were not allowed to be citizens, so you know you couldn't go off of a constitutional amendment to if you weren't a citizen. Citizen, yeah. So the the Latino population, of course, Native American, of course, right. not either. So I mean, the the suffrage movement in the U.S. is so fragmented and so fraught with so many. Um, ethnic and class I want to say issues. hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it sounds so pretty. Oh, yeah, 19th Amendment. All women can vote. No. no. <laughs> and um, here in uh, New Zealand, the, uh, well, Maori women did vote on a different day, uh, but the idea that um, that they were part of the reform bill was there. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah so
0: good thank you mama so (laughs) to round up my episode with you i'm gonna do what i do with all of my guests and it's basically i'm gonna ask you a question and i don't want you to think about the answer kind of just like it's rapid fire answer Uh um (laughs) it's gonna be fun are you ready
1: does it have to be g-rated
0: no, no, I tick the contains explicit content always. Okay. <laughs> I've already warned all the people, don't mm-hmm. we? <laughs> um, okay, so given the option to travel to other solar systems to explore the extraterrestrial existence or the ability of flight here on Earth,
1: which would you choose? Oh, flight here on Earth.
0: Yeah to just fly
1: you know yeah and by the way i have flown to other solar systems in second life oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i thought you were about to tell me about a shamanistic experience of yours uh, no i haven't done that yet mm. that was it that was the question no oh you have another one you oh, what's dear. the option
0: huh you can't say you've already done it or are you saying that
1: no no no, I wanna fly here. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm I'm so excited that I've got this electronic motor scooter. Yeah. And we fly. got an um, electronic car. Wow. I'm ready to I want my own little flying, you know, the little jetson. I'm waiting for my hovercraft. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What the heck? Where is it? I no, it should have been here already. Yeah. Come on. Okay.
0: So my this is why I'm laughing, because my next question yeah. is about So I'll just just tell you. My mom told me about a recent piece in Discovery Magazine (laughs) that stated, learning another language makes you a better person. Yeah. Do you remember telling me that? Yeah. Yeah. So I asked all my guests, what word in another language has a deep resonance or deep impact for you? Agape. Mm.
1: Oh, that was easy. I I feel that so. And that's why I named my first daughter Rudo. (laughs) Hmm.
0: yeah nice it's good mama well um we're approaching the end of this episode and i would be remiss if i didn't take a moment to voice gratitude gratitude for this earth this beautiful beautiful fenua that we live on and the network of support and love that nourish us the flora and the fauna that are so beautiful and create the equilibrium that we all crave gratitude to the ancestors that are just on the other side of that veil that whisper in our ears and that live in our bones and gratitude to ourselves for being here for exploring and taking the opportunity just to express ourselves and gratitude to Bjorn for the post-production packaging up of this little experiment of mine and thank you mama for yo-yo ma for (laughs) taking the time to be with me today and um answering my seemingly random collection of questions for you. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm really honored
1: to be part of it. Thank you.
0: Mm. and to you dear listener, thank you, thank you, thank you for for your time. And see you again in the next collection of oo oo interviews. Stay tuned to hear who is coming up next. Kakite anoaho iaque yakoto We'll